All right, let's go ahead and get started. Hopefully there's other people who are coming in, but let's pray and begin. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for this evening, oh God. We pray uh, your word would come alive in our hearts and bear fruit. We pray we would uh, have hearts and minds that are open and receptive to what your word has to say. And so we ask, teach us, oh God, by your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you are following along in the total notes, we're on page 148, Salvation History Lesson 9, He Has Risen from the Dead, is where we are picking up. So the introduction, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, Luke 24, 21. So say two of Jesus' disciples in the aftermath of his crucifixion, walking down the road, all of their hopes and dreams of what it meant for Christ, the Messiah to come, have sort of just been left disappointed in the last couple days. Hopes, prayers of the disciples were dashed as Jesus was lifted up on the cross. We can imagine the despair, the confusion, tears, as the disciples try to make sense of what has happened. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. It's hard to overestimate the impact of the glorious reversal that happens next as they realize that he has risen. So they begin with disillusionment and they end up with uh, glorious excitement. In this lesson, we're going to explore Jesus' bodily resurrection of the dead. Taken together, Jesus' death and resurrection are the most shocking and dramatic, unexpected, and exhilarating events in biblical history. It was always the biblical expectation that God would deal with the sin of the world and set the world to rights, except as we've gone over again and again, uh, they were expecting a political or military uh, setting of right, and God started with heart and reconciliation towards himself. So the fact that God will work on the cross and resurrection of Jesus is a truly magnificent triumph for the wisdom, love, mercy, justice, and glory of God. Consider, had God just restored and righted uh, the people to himself, set them free from Roman oppression or any other domination, uh, made them a sovereign nation unto themselves, they would have been a sovereign nation that still rejected their sovereign God. And so God begins with the hearts of men, uh, as Gentiles, this is good news for us uh, because God would have made them a sovereign nation of Jewish people with a few fringe Gentiles like us adopted in. But the reality is uh, the vast majority excluded and God flipped the thing upside down and invites people from every nation, every people group. So let's start with the truth that Jesus was certified as dead and then certified as righteous. Before considering Jesus' resurrection, we first need to mention his burial. Because Jesus' burial seems to be something that is emphasized in the New Testament, but not necessarily in our theology. We don't talk about it a lot. We talk about the cross. We talk about the resurrection, uh, his ascension into glory, but not a lot about his burial. Notice how the Apostle Paul elevates Jesus' burial to the level of first importance. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. 
One of the reasons the early Christians emphasized Jesus' burial may be directly indicated by the post-resurrection account in Matthew. Uh, somebody want to read for us Matthew 28, 11 through 15? While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Isn't it nice to know that politics hasn't changed in all these years? Just a little bit of bribery gets the job done. The burial of Jesus is also given preeminence by the fact that all four Gospels mention it. After Jesus rises from the dead, the New Testament makes it very clear that his resurrection was seen by many different witnesses. So Luke 24, uh, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James and other women. John 20, Mary Magdalene announces to the disciples. Uh, Acts 1, he presented himself alive to the apostles after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking of the kingdom of God. I find it in Acts 10 as well. 1 Corinthians 15 uh, that we just read together that the things of first importance, that he was buried, that he was raised, that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. So the real historical death of Jesus of Nazareth is actually extremely important. His real historical and bodily resurrection, also important, but you can't start with the resurrection if he's not proven to be dead. Uh, they are two of the most important events within the Christian biblical theology. So it's not surprising that the New Testament would labor to authenticate both of these. When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus itself, it's remarkable how almost nonchalant the gospel accounts are. Uh, the narrative is almost just matter of fact in its report of the historical account. I'm going to find it in Matthew 28, uh, 1 through 10. Uh, Mark 16, 1 through 8. And Luke 24, 1 through 9. We'll just read the uh, account in Luke. But on the first day of the week at Early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Behold, how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, returning to the tomb. They told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Just like you would say, oh yeah, guess who I ran into at the supermarket today? And they just told it to him. <laughs> Astounding. Uh, the resurrection accounts in both Matthew and Mark mention that Jesus will meet his disciples in Galilee. And we learn in Matthew 28, 16, that he mentions uh, them, that he meets them on a mountain. This holds some significance for biblical theology because God often met his people on a mountain. That's a reoccurring uh, theme we find throughout, especially the Old Testament. Uh, David L. Turner says this, Jesus meeting them on a mountain echoes the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, as well as previous mountain experiences in Matthew. 
Uh, we frequently find Jesus uh, on the side of some mountain teaching his people. R.T. France, Jesus the Galilean, has triumphed against all odds. And back in the home territory and that of his disciples, where the mission was originally launched, the good news of the kingdom of heaven is sent out in a proclamation which continues until the end of the age. Now, before Jesus is raised from the dead, it's important to think about how the Jews would have perceived his death. So listen first uh, to their taunts of him. Tim, would you want to read for us Matthew 27, 39 to 43? And then Josiah, do you want to read Luke 23, 35 to 39? And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Luke 23, And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, He saved others, let him save himself. He is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. All right, so let's consider that paired together with the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, he is to be put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Also consider Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. All right, so let's just think about some of this together. How were the Jews interpreting Jesus' crucifixion as it happened? Well, they didn't believe him. Okay. Like, just play through their words. Like, save yourself. Get off the cross. So, yeah, clearly not believing uh, his claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God. Believing he was just another, yeah, false, sorry, another, another one claiming to be God who actually wasn't because sure. well, now he's hanging on the cross and dying. Yeah. Yeah. Also, the Jews would have known um, Deuteronomy, and they probably would have known that it is a curse to be hung on a tree, and they would not understand why God, the Son of God, would curse yeah. himself. Yeah. So how would how would their understanding of Deuteronomy twenty one? Influenced what they're looking at in front of them playing out in real time. They see it as God's punishment. Yeah, mm. yeah. That makes complete sense. Especially if you're starting with this is a false messiah. God's this is punishing what happens. this man. This is what yeah. happens to oh, them. Yep. They were right. <laughs> <laughs> they were right. They were right. God was punishing him for the sins of all men. And yet, isn't it interesting where... 
I mean, you, you read later where I think it's Paul who's going to say those who persecute you, or maybe it was Jesus, I don't remember, uh, will think they are doing God a service in doing this. Like, they'll, they'll think they're serving the Lord in being a part of this curse and this persecution on you. And we find that reflected in uh, Christ himself. All right. Let's examine the following three verses from the preaching and teaching of the Apostle Paul. Uh, it's going to be Acts 17, 31. I don't know if you have these in your notes or not. Romans 1, 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 through 17. So Acts 17, 31. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Romans 1, 4. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. All right, so according to these three verses and sort of what we've been talking about, reflecting on here, uh, what was one of the purposes of the resurrection? Proving who was who he said he was. Proving the validity, validity that Christ was who he said he was. Yep. What's that? Breaking the curse. Breaking the curse. Yeah. So that we might no longer be stuck in sin. Yep. So we, as believers, wouldn't be stuck in sin. I think uh, an important phrase in there is the, uh, he has given assurance. Like, it, it's not just a proving this is who he was. Uh, there's a surety that is given to those who trust and believe in him. Yep. Uh, Gentiles being included. Yeah, the inclusion of Gentiles. That wasn't so much these verses, but... But, yeah, with what we've been talking about, yeah. Which, it, now that's a good one, because uh, if, if he's not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sin. So, if he's not been raised, Gentiles are forever out. Outside of becoming some sort of Orthodox Jew. All right, salvation history. Some of the fill in the blank for you there. Jesus' burial and eyewitness testimony of his resurrection establishes that Jesus did die. That's fill in the blank. And that he was raised. Another fill in the blank. So he died and he was raised. Jesus' resurrection was the vindication of his atoning death. Rather than being crucified as a criminal, a false messiah, and as one accursed by God, the resurrection signals God's approval of Jesus' teaching and saving work. Right? So that before the resurrection, the, the accusation was this man was accursed by God. This, what, this man was condemned by God. He was false. Only the resurrection completely flips that narrative on its head. And it's the beginning of a new creation. The vindication of Jesus' words and work was not the only purpose of his resurrection. Jesus' resurrection plays other significant roles in biblical theology as well. One of you run, want to read for us Romans 8, 19 to 23. For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Alright, so let's think together just a little bit. Uh, what is the hope that we are waiting for? And, and think of it less as, you know, sometimes you have those questions and you just sort of scour the text in front of you to come up with a perfect Sunday school answer verbatim. Uh, think of it in terms of the biblical theology that we have been talking about up to this point in the class. What, what is the hope that all creation, especially uh, those who have been redeemed, what is it we are waiting for? What's the promise yet to come? End of sin? Yeah, that's a good one. When our sanctification complete. Yeah. Complete sanctification of the elect. New heaven and new earth. New heaven, right. new earth. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's just sort of this broad uh, connective tissue and the things that you guys just talked about of the brokenness of this world and the lasting and pervasive effects of sin in all areas and just longing how long oh lord until you come and make this right all right so let's read the following three passages from paul's corinthian correspondence so first corinthians 15 verse 20 to 23 but in fact christ has been risen from the dead the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep for as by a man came death by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and then the coming of those who belong to Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 14, And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. 2 Corinthians 4, 13 and 14. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who has raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. God has promised the restoration of our bodies. You find that in Romans 8, 19 to 23. Uh, Revelation 3 verse 14 and to the angel of the church of laodicea write the words of the amen the faithful and true witness the beginning of god's creation as well as the promise that we find in philippians 3 20 and 21 but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the lord jesus christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself all right, let's look at uh, gospel accounts of Jesus' post-resurrection appearance to his disciples. I find that in John chapter 20, verse 24 to 27. Do you guys have these listed in your handout? Mm -hmm. Okay, and Luke 24, 36 to 43. Let's read the one in John. It says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Can you hear the just real life skepticism? No, I saw them drive holes 
into his body. I, I saw him scream out in anguish. I saw him die on the cross. I saw them rip the nails out of his dead flesh. And as his body was moved from one place to the next, I saw the gash in his hand. And unless I put my finger in that gash, I won't believe it. Like there's a whole lot more than I'm going to put my finger in that mark. Like there is a, a very guttural response. I saw his body ripped apart. I won't believe it. And he's not saying, unless I do this, I won't believe. He's saying, I can't believe it. That there's no earthly means by which I should believe this. Eight days later, verse 26, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Man, there is just something of gentle compassion. This isn't him uh, calling him on his weakness. Uh, this is him beckoning in from that place of weakness uh, into this uh, strength in the risen Lord. Uh, so why is it important for Jesus to prove to his disciples that his body is real? And how might this relate to what we've been talking about? Uh, the reality of his death, burial, resurrection. Why is it important for this to be a real body and not as... Uh, early heretics suggested a spiritual resurrection. Could be with God. I mean, the, yeah. the Bible records other seeing of spirits, such as uh, Samuel being called that back by Saul. I mean, sure. so that wasn't the Son of God. No one had come back and, but on their own, of their own volition, that Christ Himself hadn't called him to the grave divine testimony that he was God. What else do you guys think? Proof of the promise to come. Proof of the promise to come. Yeah. yeah we too will have resurrected holy bodies. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the resurrection is really the completion of the, of the whole thing. If, the, if this one event is true, then everything that Jesus said and promised that we would hope to see come to fruition becomes true. Everything that God has done at the, up until this point, everything that Christ has, has preached and taught um, and said about himself is completely true, and therefore we have hope. This is a pretty significant event for anybody who sees it. Not just, yeah, it's a really good point. If it wasn't, if, um, if it was just his spirit 
body, his body would still be cursed because of the Ooh. Ooh. good one. If it's just his spirit and not his body, his body's still cursed. Yeah, I just think of uh, Paul whenever a question like this comes up, because he makes a pretty big deal, like we went through and talked about earlier. He says, like, without this resurrection, there is no freedom from sin. Yeah. You're still in your sin. Yeah. It's, I think we read that earlier. And it's flipped both ways. Without the burial, it's not. Or without the resurrection, it's not. And so, like, that's pretty iterated in Scripture, importantly. And we can see the physical aspect of it here. Yeah. We're still in our sin. Jesus is still in the grave. His body is still cursed by God. And you think about the modern... I mean, not just the ancient heresies, but the modern heresies that want to say it was a spiritual resurrection. We don't believe in miracles. So Jesus wasn't really resurrected. He was resurrected in spirit. And it's sort of like we can have, we can turn over a new leaf as well. We can be better people as well. There's no hope for the future, right? If, if our hope of our physical resurrection is tied to Christ's resurrection and it didn't happen, we have no hope. Like all we're hoping for is to be a better person tomorrow because once you're dead and in the grave, it's all over with. Christianity rises and falls based on whether or not Jesus actually died and actually was risen and resurrected from the grave. The whole thing stands on that. (laughs) Chuck, do you have a sore throat tonight? Is that... Yeah, so thanks to Chuck's sore throat, that joke didn't make it onto the recording. (laughs) N.T. Wright says this, The significance of Jesus' resurrection for Saul of Tarsus as he lay blinded and perhaps bruised on the road of Damascus was this. The one true God had done for Jesus of Nazareth in the middle of time what Saul had thought he was going to do for Israel at the end of time. Consider, even as the Jewish people hope and long for today, at the end of time, uh, this beaten, (coughs) bruised, ragtag bunch of uh, Jewish remnant will be resurrected in glory. And Saul realizes that just happened to Jesus. Like, what a startling revelation that was. From what we've studied thus far, we might be tempted to think that while the new creation has begun with Jesus, we must wait until the end of the age to participate in this new creation. While that's partially true, notice the following provocative passages. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Galatians 6.14-15 and But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. In real time, right now, we are living and experiencing the blessing of that new creation. These verses imply that the new creation has also begun in us. But how is this so? Consider Romans 6. 1 through 13, which describes a third purpose for Jesus' resurrection. All right, so let's read this and then consider what is the purpose of the resurrection according to these verses. When do you guys want to read Romans 6, 1 through 13? Well, 
what shall we say then? Are we to are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lived, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let no one sin, therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God and as those who have been brought from the death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. All right, so what's the purpose of resurrection according to those verses? of life as uh, verse 4 says there uh, and yet we know that there's a coming uh, as Chuck described it post-mortem uh, time where after our physical body has died even that will be renewed to newness of life and yet we don't have to wait till then to start walking and enjoying the blessings of that new life Second uh, Corinthians five fourteen and 15, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all had died. 
And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. First Peter two twenty four. he bore himself, he, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, you have been healed. I, can I just put a parenthesis in that's not in the notes, but it bothers me. Uh, given the context of scripture and the flow of uh, biblical theology throughout scripture, when we cherry pick phrases out of this great promise of salvation, especially this phrase, by his wounds you have been healed, and then misapply them to have some central theme to do with physical healing, well, how, how do we know we can pray in faith for this person? Well, because by his wounds, we are healed. Uh, man, uh, the healing, the wound, the death that is described is our uh, state of being lost and dead in our sins. And we have been healed from that deadly wound and given life. Uh, we find it in Isaiah. We find it uh, here in 1 Peter 2. This is talking about salvation uh, not to do with physical healing. Now, when God heals somebody physically on the earth, uh, it is almost like I, it, you see it in a movie where they just do something dramatic and the person looks at him and goes, well, now you're just showing off. <laughs> Can God heal at any time anyone he wishes? Yep. Absolutely. And when he does, is just one more sort of flash glimpse of his power to save and heal and transform that which is dead and lost in sin and make it alive in Christ. Anyway, let's just be careful with that, that verse. Uh, Romans 8, 10 through 13. Uh, if Christ is in you, although your body is dead because of sin, your spirit, the spirit of life because of righteousness. Uh, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, um, it will give life to your mortal bodies. Uh, there was another one we just threw around all the time when I was a kid, wrongly misapplying. Uh, it's true, but it was way more true than we thought in just one tiny realm. And Colossians 3, 1 through 5. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Uh, if we've been raised with Christ, uh, that's given to us in present tense, not future tense. There will be a future post-mortem resurrection. Uh, but right now, uh, we have been called to die to our sins and put on Christ. And it's described as we've already been raised with him. Uh, salvation history, the fill in the blanks for you here. Jesus' resurrection is also the beginning of God's new creation. The renewal God has promised for the whole world, he has started in the body of his son. He's the, the first fruits. Uh, his body is first fruit that guarantees the resurrection of those who believe in him. Furthermore, Jesus was raised so that his resurrection life might be in us. So that we too might walk in newness of life. It's funny, we use that phrase every time someone is baptized. Uh, they may die to themselves and walk in newness of life. And we don't put the little addendum on it that says, you know, of course, once you're dead and in the grave and been, have a resurrected body, then... No, we obviously mean now we live and walk in resurrection life. 
He's not just resurrected and floating around like some haunting ghost, though. He is seated at the right hand of God, and he is reigning as Lord or Master of all. Theologians often give Jesus' resurrection attention, but the significance of Jesus' ascension, again, is little discussed. It's sort of uh, just a neat story where he goes up in the clouds. So let's uh, read the account together in Acts, Acts 1, 6 through 11. When do you want to read that? So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. All right, so the disciples ask a question in verse 6 that should strike us. This is after the crucifixion. This is after the resurrection. And they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What is it that they're asking in that question? Yeah, now are you going to conquer Rome? <laughs> now! Surely now, right? Oh, man, we endured three days of torture. Uh, we thought you were dead, but now you're resurrected. Clearly, now is the time, right? <laughs> uh, what's Jesus' answer? How, did, how does he respond to them? Who knows? Close <laughs> <laughs> into heaven. Yeah, you don't get to know. Like, uh, no one knows the day or the hour uh, when, and he he links it to uh, this coming of the end of the age. All right, so keep going with that flow. If that's the case, what's the significance of the ascension? At least according to this passage here. To announce when that is going to happen. Yeah. To announce. He's going to come back the same way. Yeah, there, there you go. It, it's announcing, number one, that it will happen. And number two, how it will happen. That it's going, it's going to happen. He's going to return. And when he does, he will fully and forever restore the kingdom. Right? Uh, and number two, this is what it's going to look like. That, that sort of like, you know, however many people were there. At, at one point, he was seen by 500 people. Maybe this is that moment. You know, however many people are standing there on the Mount of Ascension as he goes up. And yet, what are we told uh, upon his return? Every eye will see him, right? So it, it's going to be something slightly more glorious than this. Uh, and yet, it's guaranteed in this. This is guaranteeing his return. There's actually much reflection on Jesus' ascension in the New Testament. Uh, do you guys have these scriptures listed in your handout? Acts 5, 30 and 31. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel, forgiveness of sins. Romans 8, 33 to 34. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? 
It's God who justifies, who is it, who condemns Jesus Christ, the one who died more than that, who is raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Ephesians 1, 16 to 23, uh, again, mentions him seated at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Hebrews 1, 3 through 4, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, upholding the universe by his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, is superior to the angels. Hebrews 8, 1 through 2, uh, now at this point in what we are saying, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Hebrews 10, 12 to 14 but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 1 Peter 3, 21-22. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Man, I got to tell you, it is, when you start thinking in, in terms of protracted themes of biblical theology right tracing these salvation histories uh, throughout all of scripture to take something like first peter 3 as the roman church does and says baptism which corresponds to this now saves you and then they put all the weight on baptism except the weight of the thrust of his argument is not upon the baptism that saves you it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we are saved. Like it's through his death and resurrection that we have this hope, this pledge of a good conscience towards God, not through some act of splashing with water. Like, whoop, we got you wet. Like what happens if the water accidentally splashes on the person next to you? Whoops, we saved them too. It's blasphemous. We're pointing at the wrong thing. It is this glorious resurrection. That's the theme that we trace uh, throughout the biblical narrative, not what does or doesn't happen with the water. All right. I think it'd be a silly. It's a silly. I mean, I can't imagine, or at least I hope not, that somebody would actually use First Peter thirty-one or three twenty-one as a as a claim that baptism saves you, because the very next thing is not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That'd be a really silly thing. Yeah. To make a claim for. And yet it happens. <laughs> <laughs> One of those like, yes, but what does the rest of the verse say? Oh, that's called context. You say, die, heretic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so as the risen, exalted Lord, Jesus is not merely the king of Israel. I mean, consider, had they got what they hoped for, Israel would have had a king and all of us Gentiles would have been lost in our sin. Uh, Josiah would have been 98% lost in his sin. His 2% Jewish may have made it in, but the rest <laughs> lost. Only he is the king of all the earth and he reigns over every nation, every people group from heaven above. Jesus, Jesus not Josiah. Yes, thank you. Thank you for that clarification. In the apostles preaching about Jesus, it is clear that he is a threat to the powers of the world. Now, we find that in Acts 17. Uh, and, and I think throughout a even, even cursory look through the New Testament at how uh, the Jews and 
not just religious leaders, but political leaders looked at Jesus with fear of what was to come. Uh, we find him being a threat to their powers as well. Uh, if you want to read that, you can do that later. Acts 17, 1 through 8. All right, so remember that after the resurrection, God seated Jesus at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come, Ephesians 1, 20 and 22. Uh, he is the world's true Lord. In a systematic theology course, one presumes that the deity and humanity of Jesus would be a central focus. Uh, thus far in this biblical theology course, we have mostly considered Jesus as human the king in the line of David. Yet even biblical theology must be concerned with the fullness of Jesus' identity, which of course includes his participation in the Godhead. Michelle is not a positive prospect, uh, so the saints plead with God to deliver them from it. For in Sheol, there is no praise of God. It's almost as if the dead cease to exist. The second set of passages, by contrast, hold out the hope of a meaningful life after death. These texts seem to speak of God rescuing his people from Sheol, receiving them to himself in glory and in joy. Notice, however, that a bodily resurrection from the dead is nowhere part of the future hope that these passages describe. It, this was, I, I mentioned in the last session that we had of someone from our church coming rather blindfully and blissfully uh, with this book where it it was describing the early Hebrew understanding of death and Sheol and that there was really no uh, <laughs> there was no understanding of progressive revelation or biblical theology that would see uh, the track of that developing further in the mind as time goes on uh, throughout the Old Testament and then exploding in Christ and these these new testament promises so it was an entire book pinned to the old testament that said see everybody just ceases to exist especially those who are uh not saved those who are not part of the elect and it was just a poor interpretation of the old testament good to go all right good job josiah josiah the fixer so everyone who's currently watching say thanks josiah Thanks, Joseph. All right, so let's consider a third set of Old Testament texts which present a different perspective on Israel's future existence after death. Uh, Isaiah 25, Isaiah 26, and Daniel 12. Josiah, you want to read those for us? Yeah. <clears throat> on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God, we have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Isaiah 26, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Daniel 12, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been seen, 
as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. All right, so let's think together on all of these passages we've sort of read up to this point. What, especially did the Old Testament have to say collectively about the quote-unquote afterlife? There's going to be food. There's going to be food. <laughs> so that's, that's true. true. Meat. Meat. Fine wine. Interesting that the only drink promised to us in heaven is fine wine. Just interesting to me. Uh, what else? I, there's much deeper things than that. Let's not right. sidetrack on the shallow here. What What is the reality of this promise of life? The end of death. The end of death, yeah. So that to get to there, we have to start with a presumption that there is death. There is Sheol, a, a place where where people do not praise God. What else must there be? Praising of God. Right. Something of glory. Something, some place where there is joy and the praising of God. Right? Now, insert our little fascination with food and drink in there. Uh, what else do we find, especially in these last passages that we just read? Some Yeah, there will be a resurrection of those who die. Not just we died and we go there, but now there's going to be some sort of resurrection ultimately into those places, some to glory and some to contempt. Anything else? There will be a physical resurrection. A physical resurrection? seems to be in verse 3 in Daniel, this distinction between two different, like, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Like there's like, different levels? Or of... It almost seems like there's like different oh, like if you are just wise, you're like this, and then if you you turn many to righteousness like the stars here to shine like, yeah. like the stars forever and ever. So, and I think that was kind of what I was hoping we would end up pointing to there with the other stuff, uh, is there seems to be some sort of reward uh, based on our faithfulness here on earth. Now, not necessarily reward that gets us in the door, uh, but it's, it's as we see described in the New Testament, where uh, some... As their life is tested, it will all be burned up as wood, hay, and stubble. And others, uh, there's reward for their faithfulness. Now, to what degree is this uh, Hebrew poetry where it says they'll, they'll shine like the brightness of the sky above, like the stars forever? Right? That, that sort of sounds like uh, the Hebrew repeating of, of two things that are actually the same. Or is there sort of a graduated scale? And I think we just approach it with a level of humility and we say, we're just going to be careful with that one. Uh, what there is, though, embedded in it 
is there is some kind of eternal reward that's coming for the faithful and the righteous, right? It, I think we can all agree on that. Mm-hmm. And, a, yeah. Yeah, so we, we find in, um, especially in the book of Revelation, as John the Revelator uh, sees those who are beneath uh, the throne, beneath the altar of God, that this place of God's ruling and supremacy, and he's like, who are those? Well, those are the martyrs uh, who have gone through this time waiting for their full number to be brought in. And it, there seems to be some kind of special blessing for them. And I, there again, I, what that looks like, I don't know. The, but I think we can say there is some eternal reward for that which is done here on earth. Okay. Doctrine of bodily resurrection from the dead continues to develop through the intertestamental period. Uh, though it became more and more widely accepted, not all Jews believed that the dead would be raised. So the ones who didn't believe the dead would be raised were who? Sadducees. Sadducees. Anybody want to make the joke? That's why they were sad, you see. So sad. I, the funny thing is, that stupid joke has helped me remember which ones were which. <laughs> N.T. right here. Uh, the text in this third set. Uh, the ones we just read, are not speaking about a new construal of life after death, but about something that will happen after whatever life after death may involve. Resurrection is not just another way of talking about Sheol or about what happens, as in Psalm 73, afterwards. Uh, That is after the event of bodily resurrection. It speaks of something that will happen if it does after that again. Resurrection means bodily life after life after death or if you'd prefer bodily life after the state of death that's why it is very misleading and foreign to all the reverent texts to speak as one does one recent writer of resurrection to heaven resurrection is what did not happen to enoch or elijah according to this text it is what will happen to people who are at present dead not what has already happened to them. Now, how exactly that works out, I don't know. Uh, I, I think we have to be a little careful. We, we want to anchor our belief in to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? Not as some would uh, claim of soul sleep where there's some in-between thing. Uh, that doesn't seem to be reflected here. There, there is a a adding immediately to this place of joy and glory. Uh, and yet maybe, and I, I think what Wright is pointing at, uh, maybe not the resurrection of our bodies. Uh, so case in point, uh, our sister in Christ, Carol Bachman, passed away this past week. Uh, upon her last breath on earth, she breathed in the glory of God's eternal kingdom. She is absent from the body and therefore present with the Lord and yet her physical body has not yet been resurrected right you, you follow that that train uh, there's a coming of that what exactly that looks like in between or even what that looks like ultimately just remains a mystery that we just trust yes God you're going to do it right but she's not in some state of soul sleep any comments on that questions that okay
perhaps it helps us to look at where we die we <coughs> we step out of time. So maybe maybe there is, you know who knows, you know, it, it's the concept of post death time disappears. Maybe it isn't an instant, maybe for them it happens all at once. Yeah. Yeah, what, what do we do with the fact that God is outside of time? Uh, humans are bound, at least at the minute, within time. Uh, what does that look like? And that there we just default to, I don't know. Here's what I do know. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Uh, we don't have some gap theory that's built into uh, at least the scriptural text that we are given. Uh, but we know that at the end, Christ will return with the trumpet shout, with the archangel, uh, and at that time, the dead in Christ shall rise, right? So, when, how, I don't know. That, that also says when Jesus rose from the dead, like there were many that came from the grave and visited them. Um, that was playing the same thing. That is like our body raising. Jesus' resurrection, bodies come up out of the grave. They're, they're gathered together in their house and they're like, Grandma! <laughs> Grandma! <laughs> they run out the door. <laughs> what? And then the first zombie book was written at that point. Like, uh, Yeah, we, I mean, at some point we just say, we don't know. We, we don't know what this looks like. Here's what we know. Uh, we grieve, but not as those who have no hope knowing that our loved ones are in the presence of the Lord. And one day at the return of Christ, we who are yet alive will be caught up with him in the air. Uh, but those who've died in Christ will go there first. Like it, it's just this glorious picture of what is yet to come, even though we don't see it fully. And it, isn't it funny how when we start thinking about it, suddenly we start sounding like the disciples. Is now the time where you will bring the kingdom? <laughs> is now the time that you're going to restore this? And Jesus goes, hold on. <laughs> yeah. And he still doesn't give us all the details, right? Isn't that interesting? So the Sadducees are describing the New Testament, for example, uh, do not believe in the bodily resurrection. And yet let's look at three resurrections described in the mm -hmm. ministry of Jesus, even though uh, they are temporary mark chapter 5 35 to 43 uh, that's where you see the resurrection of the little girl uh, taking her by the hand he said to her talitha kumi which means little girl i say to you arise which evidently they squeezed more words into two words than uh, uh, <laughs> the english immediately the girl got up began walking uh, she was 12 years of age and they were overcome with amazement. So a little girl is raised from the dead. Luke chapter 7, 11 through 17. Uh, it says, do not weep in verse 13. Then he came up, touched the funeral procession. And the bearers stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. And John chapter 11, probably the one that we are most familiar with. As Jesus raises to life Lazarus, his friend. 
We've already introduced the concept of inaugurated eschatology, uh, the beginning of the end, right? Uh, and argued that is an important concept for having a prior biblical theology. Hopefully you've already seen in multiple passages, in multiple aspects, how God is initiating his end time salvation in the first coming of, of Jesus, but it's not yet completed. Uh, out in the hallway, just a, a bit of invitation here. Uh, there is a flyer for a little conference that's going to happen at Maple Grove, just down the street, uh, that is basically a, uh, there's an organization called Eschatology Matters that is going to be putting on a conference at Maple Grove. Uh, so Jason had sent the thing along, uh, and it's basically arguing, that, now I don't, I don't know the, the fullness of what they're going to be saying, uh, but it's less of, Lord willing, uh, less of a get your charts and maps out. Let's show you how the whole end is going to come and how you've probably missed it and you already got the mark of the beast by accident. Uh, those conferences are out there. God help you if you go to those. Uh, this is more of tracing the lines of biblical theology of eschatology matters, how the end will come matters because it's already been inaugurated. We're seeing it now. We are living now in light of the end, right? Uh, as Christ is the first fruits and now we are putting on Christ. So if you're interested in that, uh, check out the flyer that's in the hallway. We'll, we'll take a break here in just a few minutes. Uh, you can check that out. There is an online thing where you can register for it. And there's a code if you're part of EWC and the School of Ministry that is on there. You can put that in. I think it's Maple. So just in case you're listening, you need to come into our hallway at Eden Worship Center <laughs> and look at the flyer because uh, that's where the link is uh, and then you can put in the code MAPLE and so Josiah is doing it right now he is so energetic all right so look at the biblical theme of resurrection in the following passage and think about how the concept of inaugurated eschatology helps us understand it all right John 5 24 through 29 Truly, truly, I say to you, ever, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who hear in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Can you hear uh, there is like the hour is coming and it's already here. There is a life in Christ already here. And yet we do not see those dead in their tombs coming out yet all right uh, so how does this this passage relate to this idea of inaugurated eschatology and how does it relate to a broader biblical theology of resurrection
beginnings of the the, the foreshadowing of the uh, revelation eschatology. Yeah, awesome connection there. Awesome connection. Uh, and just for the sake of recording, the the reception by believers of the Holy Spirit is a deposit. It's a it's a foretaste of what's yet to come in the fullness of God's kingdom uh, just like uh, the new life we have of believers is this foretaste of an even greater newness of life yet to come good answer so good I'm going to tell everybody else to shut up just kidding anybody else have a, a thought on that shut up good <laughs> I'm not following that all right, so to complete our tracing of biblical theology of resurrection, uh, let's read one last passage near the end of the Bible and the end of the age. When do you guys want to read? Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, pre, uh, presence, right? Yeah. Yep. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they have done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All right, so somebody trace for us the arc of progressive revelation, biblical theology of resurrection life after this earthly life where it starts and where it ends up and maybe it doesn't necessarily have to be one person somebody give us the first piece of it what was the first early understanding death and dust and no more death dust to dust you shall return right right what's the next piece shale shale Right, that there's some place of uh, death that isn't great. I mean, obviously death's not. Nobody's like, "Yay, I died!" Right? Uh, <laughs> well, maybe some people. Well. But uh, <laughs> but there, there's there's <laughs> something of death that's not great, followed by we miss glory. Did we miss something? Yeah. <clears throat> After the uh, dust to dust, we have the initial promise. Okay, so some sort of uh, redemption promise for we, we need that string and hope to, to, to connect it all. Good, yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree. Glory. Yeah, so glory. So death, dust, a coming Savior, Sheol, separation from God, but, but some sort of uh, salvation from Sheol in glory and joy, that, and it's something that the Especially the psalmists keep longing for, oh God, don't just leave me in shale. 
And then it's God, you won't just leave me in shale. There's going to be uh, some sort of joy and glory that comes out of it into first heaven. It, yeah, this this idea of uh, it's not just a better place, like like not bad, it, like shale with air conditioning. Right? This <laughs> is this is actually uh, some sort of glory where there are rewards for righteousness. Uh, it is it is almost heavenly as it's described into the New Testament through Christ, right? There's there's Chuck's line. Uh, Christ is that man who accomplishes that that thing of salvation even after this life into some sort of heavenly glory all the way through to the book of Revelation where those who are righteous in Christ are received into that everlasting reward, but those who uh, have been wicked are not just left in shale, which is minus air conditioning, but it is a place of torment. It is a second death. That's a rather nasty... Like, it, the, the two strings turn in very different and significant directions. A second death versus eternal life. All right. Uh, one more passage to... Yeah, go ahead. In the passage from... Revelation is Hades a synonym for like Sheol? <coughs> Why is it death in Hades? Is that because that which, has been which used passage? as a uh, hey, Revelation which, twenty? Yeah, the one that was just before it. Thirteen. Uh, my guess, without looking, would be yes, uh, because we we find uh, Hades used now. Hades would have just been a. Uh, is it Greek or Roman? Greek. But it's kind of it, that domain of the dead. So the, this domain of the dead, which gets sort of, the language of it gets brought into uh, Revelation here in the New Testament. Good question. So then is Hades the equivalent of Shale? Probably. It, it, it seems like it, it's the, the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew understanding of Sheol. So the, the Hebrews would have had that. Uh, the Greeks would have had the god Hades, and then Hades being the domain of the dead. Yeah, yeah. Given given John's location, uh, exiled on the island of Patmos, uh, that would have it would have been fitting language given the culture in which he was currently captive. Good. All right, First Corinthians fifteen. One more passage on this. Uh, forty-two to forty-three. So it is with the resurrection of the dead that. What is sown perishable is raised imperishable. What's sown in dishonor is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but raised in power. Sown in the natural body, but raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is a man of heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those of heaven. 
Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the, Im- nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. What We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, And we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. All right, just to wrap up this section, then we'll take a break. John Piper here, a few quotes um, from a sermon titled, What Happens When You Die, The Dead Will Be Raised Imperishable. It seems to me that the hope of resurrection does not have the same place of power and centrality for us today as it had for early Christians. And I think of one of the reasons for that is that we have the wrong view of the age to come. When we talk about the future and the eternal state, we tend to talk about heaven, and heaven tends to imply a place far away characterized by non-material, ethereal, disembodied spirits. In other words, we tend to assume that the condition that the departed saints are in now without their bodies is the way it will always be. We've, been encur- we've encouraged ourselves so much on how good it is for them now that we tend to forget that it is an imperfect state and not the way it will be, nor the way Paul wanted it to be for himself. Yes, to die is gain, and yes, to be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. But no, this is not our ultimate hope. This is not the final state of our joy. This is not the final, that this is not our final or main comfort when we have lost loved ones who believed. That is our hope, is to be seen with the risen Christ, with the body like his glorious body, to know him in a form like his. Our final destiny and our eternal state is not ethereal, disembodied state of distant heaven. It is to reign with Christ here on the renewed earth. This hope is so vibrant for the early Christians that they comforted each other, not mainly with the joys of the disembodied state after death, but with the hope of resurrected bodies, Philippians 3.21. God did not create the physical universe willy-nilly. He had a reason, namely, to add to the ways his glory is externalized and made manifest. The skies are telling the glory of God. That's why he made them. Your body fits into the same category of physical things that God created for this reason. He's not going back out of his plan to glorify himself through human beings and human bodies. So 1 Corinthians 6, 11 through 20 says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Why does God go to all the trouble to dirty his hands to reestablish our body and clothe it with immortality? Because his son paid the price for his, of his life so that God would be glorified in our bodies forever and ever. You were bought with a the price, therefore glorify God with your bodies. God will not dishonor the work of his son and that's why he will raise your body. The sting of death is sin, but Christ bore the curse of sin. The power of sin is the law, but Christ satisfies the demands of the law. Therefore, Paul cries out, thanks be to God who has given us the victory through Jesus Christ. 
When Christ died, he forgave sin, fulfilled the law, defeated death, and obtained not just our souls, but also our bodies. Therefore, God will honor the work of his son by raising your body from the dead. And you will use your body to glorify him forever and ever. That is why you have a body now, and that is why it will be raised imperishable. Amen. All right, let's take a break. Take five minutes, stretch your legs, get some coffee, hit the restroom. We'll pick it up with Lesson 10. You'll be my witnesses. All right, let's start off with a question that was asked in the break. Go ahead, Aiden, give us that question again. So with resurrected bodies implying God's good creation, does that mean we enjoy God's creation with our new heavenly bodies like we do now with, like, taste? Is it just limited to food as it's mentioned in Scripture or are there other things? So I watched a pretty cool video very recently that went over all of this and did not provide any scripture with the argument, but it was basically a list of, and it's a guy that I, I agree with a lot theologically, but interestingly enough, this is the one video that he made all these claims about how basically almost everything that we do now, we will do then, um, without like any scriptural references. So all that to be said, I'm also curious what your answer is going to be. <laughs> Anybody want to chime in? Yeah, I have a partial answer, and I think I know where the line is kind of drawn. I mean, like, obviously, we probably don't use the bathroom. That would be a weird waste. Um, uh, but <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. Uh, but also the fulfillment of our uh, relationship with Christ as our model of marriage. So obviously, there's a line from that sort of bodily enjoyment, but I don't know before then which basically leaves eating. So, yeah. is it just that? Uh, so, difficult to say, uh, obviously, because Scripture doesn't say, so we want to be careful uh, not to speak authoritatively where Scripture does not. Uh, and yet, if there is some sort of restoration of that original... Um, creation that was not contaminated by sin so sort of the back to eden type model um well within that was the realm of work and um strengths and gifts and talents that god has given people uh, it's just minus all of the things that are um sin broken which ironically and not to make it weird doesn't necessarily uh, preclude things like waste uh, just because in a perfect environment uh, you have a perfect working together of all things there is no waste like it, it actually it is a thing that perfectly leads to the next thing which perfectly leads to the next it, like all things working together for good and I, I think we can speculate within that structure like okay so what does uh, a embodied perfect eternity look like well it could look very much like it does now only no sin no waste no brokenness at all what does it mean that we'll be ruling and reigning with christ well it seems to point to back to that perfect dominion over creation 
Uh, we're just not told exactly. So we're just careful with speculation. That's, that's pretty much exactly what the There you go. All right. There are things that <clears throat> God gave us as far as enjoyment here on earth that I think we will not have in perfected state. Yeah. Yeah. Therefore, meaning certain pleasures will not be experienced. Yeah. So, so I, that's where it begs the caution from us as theological uh, speculists, where we're just guessing what's going to come. And then every once in a while, Jesus just sort of pops through and goes, Guys, you don't understand anything. In heaven, there's no marriage or giving in marriage will be like the angels. We go, I'm sorry, what's this again? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so we have this, uh, it's kind of like when you tell your kids, kids, we're going to go on vacation. And then you describe the glories of where you're going. And all they got was, we're going on vacation. Uh, that's sort of it right there. Like, I, I'm not exactly sure what it's going to look like, but we'll find Blink, out. Lincoln in the tower. I'm guessing nobody's coming. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Lesson 10. You will be my witnesses. Uh, Jesus is lifted up into heaven and his disciples watch him go. Uh, they must have been staring into the sky dumbfounded because angels stand beside them and say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? Yeah, it's ironic that nobody went, oh, there's angels. <laughs> They're just, it's so fixated on looking up that when suddenly there's angels who appear beside them, uh, the angels have like... Was it a jump scare? You have to kind of hope it was like, there's an angel. Um, the question should probably be read as an indirect and gentle rebuke. You have work to do. Why are you still standing here? The disciples hear this and then return to Jerusalem. So in this lesson, we're going to study what happened next. How did this movement that started among 11 men become a worldwide phenomenon. How is it that we know about Jesus today and what he said, what he did, even though we live on the opposite side of the world? This lesson will explore the birth of the Christian church and especially provision of the Spirit at Pentecost. All right, so it starts with pointing out the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the Feast of Weeks. Before Jesus left his disciples, he made promises concerning the Holy Spirit. When you guys want to read for us Luke 24 and Acts 1, verse 7 and 8. I got it. Uh, you are Luke 24. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he part. He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Acts 1, 7 and 8. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. All right, so John, in his gospel, which is different from the synoptic gospels. He gives us different information, uh, provides a different angle on the giving, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So uh, somebody want to read for us the excerpts from Acts 1, verse 7 and 8? Acts 1, verse 7 and 8. 
from John 14 and 15 and 16 and then 20. There, there's a bunch of them here, but I want us to hear uh, this different perspective of John. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because, because it neither sees me, sees him, nor knows him. He, sorry, can't read. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. John 15 But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you, from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. John 16 Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. No longer concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have my, many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he, he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare, to you, declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. John 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said, said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. All right, so just <clears throat> thinking about those passages together on uh, what the outpouring of the Holy Spirit looks like, we find in the synoptic gospels and in acts the outpouring of the spirit seems to be an empowerment for uh, the proclaiming of the gospel uh, an empowerment um, sp specifically given to the disciples to be witnesses of jesus while in john it seems mostly concerned with the spirit's witness to the disciples about jesus and the truth when he comes he will testify to you about what I've said. He will remind you of all I have said. And I think it's important for us to consider uh, both of those are absolutely crucial for the believer. We need that primary influence of the Holy Spirit to breathe life upon God's word, to, to cause us to have eyes to see it, to understand, uh, to rightly recognize Christ. But we also need the empowering as witnesses to a world around us. 
Before the event of Pentecost is recounted in the book of Acts, Luke provides an intervening story about the choosing of Matthias, which is kind of interesting. Uh, Acts chapter 1, just so you want to read this for us. Uh, Acts 1, 12 through 26. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. <clears throat> In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem that the field was called in their own language, the Keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. All right, so why... Do you think they needed 12 apostles? Why couldn't they just stay with 11? 12 tribes? Yeah, there, there's a, a biblical theological thread that we've tracked through from the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, we're going to find that represented in the end. Uh, as Jesus says, these are the 12 who sit upon the thrones. And so you, you have this continuity between Old Testament and New Testament and it, it strikes me as interesting that they got that so quickly. It hasn't been that long, and yet there's like 120 people up in this other room, and Peter goes, guys, Scripture has to be fulfilled. Like, the Holy Spirit was uh, leading them to recognize the truth of these Scriptures and connect the dots. And I, I don't know, I read that and wonder, would we have done that? Like. Yeah. You know, I'll yeah. Call church at that point, and we needed the 12 males to do so. Okay, so it, just for the sake of recording, in case we didn't catch it, uh, the Hebrew tradition to start a synagogue, you had to have 12 Hebrew males. Uh, there again, con it's continuity from the old, these 12 tribes. Like, th this is how we're going to count the base number of this thing. And from there, it 
once this 12th apostle is chosen, the story goes on. Like it, we're sort of stuck, stuck. We're waiting in the upper room. The 12th is chosen. It's almost as if God was waiting for there to be 12 apostles again before pouring out the Holy Spirit. Like that's the lot we get this. And then like the last tumbler falls into place, uh, the day of Pentecost comes and the Holy Spirit is poured out. Uh, do you know what day this is on the Jewish holy calendar? According to Exodus 23, pause rhetorically. Uh, according to Exodus 23, the Feast of Unleavened Bread or Passover is followed by the Feast of Harvest. We find that Exodus 23, 16, in which the first fruits of the wheat harvest are presented to the Lord. Exodus 23, 19. The feast is also called the Feast of Weeks. Exodus 34, 22. In Leviticus 23, we learn that this festival occurred 50 days after the sheaf of the wave offering was brought to the priest and it's from the greek word for 50th that the festival was named pentecost so 50th uh, this numbering is also confirmed in deuteronomy 16 9. all right so keep that in mind now read the following account of the book in the book of jubilees the jewish uh, document written about a hundred years before the time of christ so this is from uh, this is extra biblical, right? So not included in the canon of our scripture. But Jubilee 6, 15 through 19 says, And he gave to Noah and to his sons a sign that there should not again be a flood on the earth. He set his bow in the cloud for a sign of the eternal covenant that there should not again be a flood on the earth to destroy it as in all the days of the earth. For this reason, it ordained... It is ordained and written on the heavenly tablets that they should celebrate the feast of weeks in this month once a year to renew the covenant every year. And this whole festival was celebrated in heaven from the day of creation till the days of Noah, 26 jubilees and five weeks of years. And Noah and his sons observed it for seven jubilees and one week of years till the day of Noah's death. And from the day of Noah's death, his sons did away with it until the days of Abraham and they ate blood but Abraham observed it and Isaac and Jacob and his children observed it to up to thy days and in thy days the children of Israel forgot it until we celebrated it anew on the mountain so why might God have chosen to pour out his spirit on the feast of weeks if that's the the symbolism that we're pointing to here, why why might God have done that? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Think about the intentionality of God with the crucifixion happening at Passover. Right? That, that wasn't a coincidence. It wasn't like a oh, it's Passover hey, there's a good connection between Jesus and the Passover lamb. Like that, there's an intentionality in that. Uh, it could be that God chose to pour out his spirit on the feasts of weeks as a kind of gracious reversal of the original festival. Instead of Jews presenting their first fruits to God, God now pours out the spirit as a down payment of a later spiritual harvest of fullness yet to come. It's probable though that the tradition mentioned above is primarily in view of Whereas Mount Sinai, God gave 
or gives from above his written law on the stone tablets to initiate the covenant at Pentecost, God pours out his spirit from above to initiate a new covenant in which the law is written on the tablets of the human heart. The new covenant is a renewal of the Sinaitic covenant only in the sense that it fulfills what the Sinai covenant was designed to do all along, but could not because of the weakness of sinful flesh. So you have this beautiful uh, coming together in God's timing as Christ, the Passover lamb, is sacrificed on Passover. And as they celebrate year after year, the giving of the law, God speaking from the mountain, uh, God now pours out from heaven and writes his law on human hearts. James Vanderkam says this, the Jubilees Qumran tradition shows that by the second century BC, BCE, the festival of weeks was closely tied to the events of Mount Sinai, especially the covenant between God and Israel. The festival of weeks was the date for making and remembering the biblical covenant and for renewing uh, Sinai's covenant. Uh, just keep that in mind. Like that, that is sort of like information lost on us. Uh, why? Because we don't uh, have some festival of weeks that we celebrate every year going, ah, we remember the covenant God made with us, right? The, this covenant that they made and then they kept and it, that sort of strange language from Jubilees. And then, then they forgot it and they ate blood. But then Abraham remembered it, but then they forgot it up until our day. And now we've kept it. We're remembering every year we come together with a special uh, celebration of this uh, law given by God. And God, right in the middle of that, breaks out with his Holy Spirit, uh, writing it on the hearts of men. It's just sort of a cool picture. All right, so turn your attention to the account of Pentecost itself as recorded in Acts 2. So rather than us just speculating about it, somebody want to read for us Acts 2, 1 through 13. I can. <clears throat> when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like a rush of a violent wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages, as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at, <clears throat> and at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each, oh, of each gathered. Oh, no, I messed up. Sorry. In the native language of each, amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? <clears throat> and how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya, nope, Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and <clears throat> Arabs, in our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deed of power or deeds of power. 
All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But the others sneered and said, They are filled with new wine. <clears throat> All right. So a couple things here. One, Aiden just illustrated for us. Before volunteering to read a passage of scripture, review it and see if there's words that you don't want to say out loud in public and then allow someone else to volunteer. Isn't it ironic that we're reading a passage about them uh, coming from all these different places and hearing it spoken in their own language, only it's just full of names that we can't hardly pronounce in our language. It's just an irony in that. All right. So where were the disciples when this is happening? They're together in a room. What city are they in? Jerusalem. Right. In Jerusalem, uh, possibly in or around the temple area when the spirit is poured out, which could be significant because they're, they're clearly not in the upper room. They're, they were in the upper room and now they're in the street someplace, right? And at this gathering of people who have come to worship who would have been going to the temple are at least within earshot of where they are, right? You tracking with me here? Uh, so it's significant because uh, it could signal that God is building a new temple in which his spirit can dwell, a temple consisting of those who believe in Jesus, the Messiah. They, they've traveled from all over the world to come to the temple. Right? The temple is the main central place of worship all over the world, all over the known world of that time. Uh, and what do they hear? Uh, salvation in Christ. Like, come to Jesus as opposed to come to this awesome temple we have built. It seems to me like this is almost like a reversal of the Tower of Babel. There's yeah. the Tower of Babel they had. Um, God said, well, I'm going to split you up. I'm going to disperse you because you didn't want to do it yourself. Oh, and here it's like, okay. From here, we see in the New Testament saying God's calling us to be unified now. Yeah. And they're able to speak to everybody unified now. So. Yeah. That's crazy. Especially if the centerpiece of Babel was a ziggurat. If it actually was a tower of worship as a testimony to themselves, but a tower of worship. And now it's this reversal of languages being unified come to the one true temple that is Christ. Pretty, pretty beautiful there. Salvation history. The promise of the spirit is connected to the empowering of the disciples so that they can faithfully witness to the person and the work of Jesus. The pouring out of the spirit is delayed until the apostles can symbolically reconstitute the 12 of a new Israel. And until the festival of the covenant Renewal begins. God has begun the restoration of his people, Israel, drawing Jews from all nations. That was the promise, is that it would go to all nations. And so at the inauguration of it, all nations have come to Jerusalem. <clears throat> Fulfillment, expansion, opposition, and inclusion. When the Spirit is poured out, the disciples begin to speak in other languages. The crowds are perplexed, and some begin to sneer. Then Peter responds to the confusion with and the charge of drunkenness acts 2 14 to 21 but peter standing with the 11 raised his voice and addressed them the men of judea and all who live in jerusalem let this be known to you listen to what i say indeed these are not drunk as you suppose for it is only not notice he addresses that to the men who live locally 
the people from other places and other tongues go, holy cow, God is doing something amazing. I hear the glory of God declared in my language. But for the people who lived right there who don't know those languages, go, they sound crazy drunk. They're babbling. Oh, Chuck sticking with his biblical theology thread. I like it. Yeah. <clears throat> Verse 15. Indeed, these are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel in the last days. Uh, it will be God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see vision. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, I will, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. I will show uh, portents in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. It, this is an interesting translation we've chosen here. Smoky mist and portents. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and all of, <clears throat> and of all that are blah, blah. Man, I'm reading great. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, all of us are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father promised Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you both see and hear, for David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Right from the day of Pentecost, this dramatic movement began to multiply rapidly. All right, so here, here's some accounts of the early Christian community, Acts 2, 41 to 47. So those who welcomed this message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to their number. Uh, they were praising God, having goodwill towards all the people, and day by day the Lord added to the number of those who were being saved. Acts 4, 32 through 35, now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership over his possessions. Uh, they would bring what they had and lay it at the feet of the apostles who distributed it as needed. Acts 5, 12 through 16, many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the apostles. Uh, uh, unclean spirits were being cured. Though the text above indicates that the power and generosity of God's new people generated awe, goodwill, and high esteem, the movement did not go unopposed. So it's not like uh, many are added, the Holy Spirit is poured out, everything is awesome, and no one is against us. It was opposed. We read, uh, we read already in Acts 4 that the apostles were being arrested and threatened. Then in Acts 5, they're brought into the council again. Upon hearing the apostles' bold words of resistance, the council is enraged and wants to kill them. <clears throat> Fantastic. Then Gamaliel speaks up in Acts 5, 35 to 40, uh, and he basically says, uh, guys, we're not sure what this is. Let's be careful because if it's God, verse 39, uh, you won't be able to stop them. You might be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Oh, good day. Yeah, right? <laughs> Shut up. Stop doing this. And here's a good beating. Be on your way. Uh, it's an interesting passage because it confirms that there had been false messiahs before Jesus, right? It, uh, who knows who this guy is? Is he one more in a string of false messiahs or is this actually 
God at work. If it's a false messiah, it's going to die out and go away. If it's God, you can't stop it. Uh, and that some of the Jewish leaders were viewing Jesus as that false messiah. Clearly, that was, that was their motivation for killing him. The entire book of Acts proves that the Christian undertaking was of God and that it could not be stopped. Uh, so much so that we, we fast forward in the book of Acts till we get to Stephen, the first martyr, martyr in the New Covenant. Uh, martyr is, is not a thing. A martyr is someone who dies for a cause. Uh, uh, martyr? Turtle? <laughs> Don't derail me. Uh, so in Acts 7, somebody want to read the... Well, let me just give us the highlights because this goes on for about a book and a half here. Uh, he's called in and what does he begin to do but immediately recount to them Israel's history uh, all of where they have been God's covenant with them God's covenant with the patriarchs uh, how God has called them to this place has promised them this place uh, shows how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that and then he turns like a biting dog and says you're the one who killed him and then he turns his eyes to heaven and says and I see the clouds parted and the son of man standing at the right hand of the throne in glory. Uh, and they clap their hands over their ears, rush towards him and stone him to death. It's frequently observed in the, you like my little summary of like two and a half pages there. Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, <laughs> one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You have received the law of uh, the law as derived by angels, but you didn't keep it. A shocker that this guy gets stoned you know i don't know who saw that coming <clears throat> it's frequently been observed that the book of acts is structured according to acts 1 8 you will be my witnesses in jerusalem judea and samaria secondly thirdly to the ends of the earth the early chapters of acts describe the expansion of the gospel in jerusalem so let's examine this following little string of text here uh, acts 1 or acts 8 verse 1 saul approved of his execution and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem they were scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria except the apostles uh, chapter 8 verse 4 and 5 now those who were scattered went about preaching the word Philip went down to Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ uh, chapter 8 verse 14 and 17 and when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on them, and they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Uh, when they had testified and spoken the word of God, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages and Samaritans. Uh, chapter 8, verse 40, But Philip found himself at Azotus. As he passed through, he preached the gospel at all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So the gospel continues to, to spread and expand. Uh, we see evidence of it expanding from this small core group of uh, Jews in Jerusalem into uh, what is all of the earth. The story of Cornelius is not one of the better known stories in the New Testament. From the perspective of biblical theology, however, it is a radical paradigm shifting event. And I think that's tied to uh, why we see there's there's a couple instances in the New Testament where if we're going to understand that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon believers, why do we have a couple instances where it seems like a separate event 
or even a precipitating event like we find with Cornelius. Uh, and I think it comes down to this tracing the line of biblical theology. So Cornelius is a Gentile. He's a devout man who feared God and prayed continually, Scripture tells us. He had a vision where an angel told him that some men were coming, and one of them was named Peter. Uh, Peter fell into a trance and saw the heavens open. This is Acts 10, 11, and 12. Something like a great sheet descending, letting down from the four corners and all kinds of animals, reptiles, birds of the air, unclean things, right? And, and Peter has a problem with that when the voice says, arise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, by no means, Lord. Why is it that Peter just keeps correcting God, right? <laughs> by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. What is he appealing to in that? Old law, right? Jewish tradition. I am, I am a good Orthodox Jew. I would never do such a thing. <clears throat> the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and was taken up into heaven. Uh, Acts 10, 19 to 20. While Peter was pondering the vision, he's so entrenched in his uh, religious tradition that he's like, what could this possibly mean? <laughs> While he's... Yeah, and it had to come three times. He, he's not like, uh, and zero times are we told, okay, right? It just it just ends, and he's like, what could this possibly mean? Is there a correlation with this three times between when Christ asked him three times? <laughs> You'll deny me three times? Yeah. That could be. Three men are could looking be. for you. Yeah. <laughs> Behold, three men are looking for you. Uh, there's a, a bit of repetition of three here. Yeah. Rise, go down, accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Right, so th this is this is a giant flashing light. Like, don't miss this, Peter. So, skip down to verse thirty-three in Acts ten. Uh, so Peter opened his mouth and said, "Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality." Oh yeah, he's finally figured it out. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him, for as the word that He has sent to Israel, preaching good news and peace through Jesus Christ, for He is Lord of all. You yourselves know that what happened throughout all Judea, Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism of John was proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy Spirit, with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, and God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country and the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness, and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. What He's halfway through his sermon. Like, he's, he's on a roll. Like, he is connecting the Old Testament dots here. All the prophets testify to him, and those who believe in him are saved. Well, <clears throat> while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Oh, we fully understand it. This is poured out on all who believe. And then when it's poured out on all who believe, they're astonished, right? For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water baptism from these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain with them several days.
Uh, find also in Acts 11, 15 through 18. Uh, as I began to speak, he's recounting it. The Holy Spirit fell on them just as it did on us at the beginning. <clears throat> what was so shocking? What was so unexpected to the Jews about the gift of the Holy Spirit being given to the Gentiles? Why were they astounded at this? They're not, yeah, they're not Jews. They're not God's chosen people. Yeah, yeah, the, the promise was given to us, right? All, all of this covenant that we trace back through the patriarchs of old, that this waiting, waiting of the Messiah, that was us. Of course he would come to us. Of course he would give his spirit to us. But these guys, right? It, it, we're back to uh, the vision God gave to Peter. Like, stop calling unclean that which I have called clean, that which I have made clean. I think of this is a proof of the Holy Spirit being on Peter because I think otherwise he would have had a build moment like, if I tell them, they're going to believe and I don't want that. <laughs> yeah. I said Jonah. Yeah, so Jonah uh, yeah. receives a, a similar message and goes, I'm not going to tell them because they're going to repent and believe and, and not be destroyed. And Think how long, remember, what are the Jews waiting for? Some sort of deliverance from this bond. We're God's chosen people, and yet we're just suffering and suffering and suffering. Uh, at some point, we just, we want to rejoice when our enemies are destroyed. <laughs> we want to rejoice when we are exalted, that the Gentiles are put in their place. And that could have happened, but God breaks in and demonstrates his salvation. And I think especially in the way that we see uh, the Holy Spirit poured out there. Well, and here he's also a centurion working for Rome. And why <laughs> would God possibly give the Romans? <laughs> yeah, yeah, of all people. Yeah. Uh, why, why choose somebody who's working for Rome as a centurion? Terrible. Mm -hmm. Providential. That's good. In order to understand how revolutionary it was that uncircumcised Gentiles <sighs> would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit from Israel's God, we need to remember that thousands of Jews died for the right to circumcise. In the decades leading up to this fateful day with Cornelius, Jews around the Mediterranean had labored to preserve the identifying markers for the Jewish people. It would have been a category it would have been a category mistake in the minds of many early Jews to talk about an uncircumcised person who belonged to the people of God. Like that this was a significant and costly marker for them. Since we are so far removed from this reality and often take it for granted that the Gentiles can enjoy Jewish promises, this is sometimes hard for us to understand. But this is the major issue for the early church. The question is, what must I do to be saved? When Gentiles are included, uh, circumcision again bounces to the top of the category of what we're going to talk about. What they can eat. Can you eat food sacrificed to idols? Can you eat uh, food with blood in it? What's the early commands that the church sends out? Like, well, make sure you do this, this, and this. So much so that by the time the apostle Paul comes around planting early churches, what are they still fighting about 30 years later? Circumcision, right? The Judaizers are coming in going, yeah, but, yeah, but really, this is what you need to do. All right, some of the salvation history fill in the blanks for you here the new covenant community experiences a unity that israel never knew 
It demonstrates that the presence of the Spirit is in their midst. As the gospel message spreads throughout Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then even farther, it encounters the Gentiles. Shockingly, the Spirit is poured out on Gentile believers in Jesus without them first being circumcised. Uh, this is an important key for us thinking about our interaction with other believers today, that God has not called us first. That's an important word. Hasn't called us first to orthodox fidelity. Now we are called to orthodox fidelity, right? To, to have right beliefs and to live them out, to exercise them in a right way. And yet God seemingly has not gotten hung up on orthodox fidelity. It's progressive revelation, even in the life of a believer, where we know things. Then we look back 10 years at where we were and we go, oh man, I hope there's no record of that. I, I hope that wasn't recorded for all of posterity. I had so, why didn't God tell me? And we look at the people around me. Why didn't you tell me? Like what, what on earth? Why would you leave me like that? Because there, there's this progressive revelation as uh, this process of sanctification is going on. But I think that calls us to a level of humility and caution when we interact with other believers that we don't elevate orthodox fidelity to first principles. Faith and trust in Christ is first principles. And out of that, we build downward a foundation of orthodox fidelity. Uh, I, I think that's important because you're going to, just like we did the other night, be surrounded by believers who truly believe in Christ, but don't believe quite like us. And we have to start with, is there a fundamental belief in Christ that is actually the overarching foundation? As we work down from there, well, now we have differing levels of what's that partnership going to look like, right? So we can, we can agree to work for the good of the community in which we're placed uh, with things like a shared common space and, and ways to build relationships. Uh, are we going to host biblical seminars together and uh, send out missionaries to the nations to preach uh, reformed Baptistic theology? Yeah, probably not, right? Does that make, <laughs> does that make sense? Uh, and yet we're looking for what are, what are the common threads of faith in Christ? Now that that's harder than it sounds. It seems like that'd be really easy. Anyone who acknowledges Jesus. Yeah, but what Jesus? Mm -hmm. Right? So that the more you the more you scratch beneath the surface, the more difficult that becomes. Uh, Can you redefine orthodox fidelity? Uh, faithfulness to right teaching of Scripture. Uh, so fidelity would just be faithfulness and orthodox would be uh, right teaching. Uh, Trying to think of a, an example off the top of my head. I mean, I mean, anytime you start getting into legalism, right, we're, we're back to the Judaizers and circumcision. But what level of that is viewed as accomplishing salvation and what part of that is just used to mark us out? I'm just thinking about examples from our Amish neighbors here. And I think we need to be careful about judging churches that are not our own. Like, let's... let's Yeah, Luther and Calvin uh, had some rather significant differences. Uh, 
And then you start throwing in some of the guys like Zwingli, uh, where uh, Luther and him almost get in a fist fight. And because of what Zwingli believed about the Lord's Supper and baptism, Luther says, I'm pretty sure that guy's not a Christian. <laughs> we should we should probably approach that with some level of uh, humility and grace towards fellow brothers and sisters. <laughs> Why? Because give them 20 years and they may be in a totally different camp. They may think rightly just like we do. <laughs> All right. Not circumcision, but the Holy Spirit. All right, so for now, we'll skip over the accounts of Paul's conversion and his first missionary journey and look at the apostles' life and teaching a little bit more in the next lesson. But biblical theology, truth revealed in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon Cornelius and those who were with him, the second Pentecost that we see, if you want to call it that, was tested and later confirmed in the early church in Jerusalem. Uh, that truth was fairly hard won. Like it, it took a council of Jerusalem to come up with that. And one becoming uh, solidified through deliberation and study of the scripture. The Jerusalem council was another significant turning point in biblical theology. It was officially recognized there that Gentiles were not under obligation to keep the law of Moses in order to be full members of God's new covenant people. We read about the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, 1 through 35. The council was prompted by certain men from Judea who were telling Gentile converts that they could not be saved unless they were circumcised. And by some of the believing Pharisees, it's interesting that we need to keep in mind that we have Pharisees who we normally think of as the bad guys in the story, right? The apostles, good guys, uh, Pharisees, the bad guys. Only at this point, we have believing Pharisees who have trusted in Christ, but they're still Pharisees, right? Who thought that Gentile converts should be instructed in keeping the law. Why? Because the law was so central to them, right? In response, Paul, Peter, and then James affirmed that faith in the grace of Jesus alone is needed for cleansing the heart and living right. They also urged the converts to stay away from idolatry and immorality. The letter giving this decision is then received in joy, and encouraged by the Gentiles. Remember God's promise in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 22 to 28. Somebody want to read that for us. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I get, that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Thanks. 
All right, so consider and examine that with the New Testament text concerning the Spirit. Now, there are varied gifts. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7, but the same Spirit. A variety of services, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them in everyone. And to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Paul again in 2 Corinthians 3, 3 through 6. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on the tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. First Thessalonians 1, 4-7. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit and full of conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. 1 John 3, 23 and 24. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandment abides in him, and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us, that his, by his Spirit whom he has given us. All right, so thinking according to those passages, what's the purpose of the Holy Spirit being given to believers? Where does where does Ezekiel start us? What what is the uh, sort of reoccurring drum that he keeps beating in there? Yeah, the glory of God's going to be put on display in front of our peop- all people. Yeah, uh, up to this point, God's people have lived their lives in such a way as to profane or bring shame on the name of God. But now there's a, a significant change that's going to happen. And, and pri- previously, God had given them his law. But what's, what's the significant change that Ezekiel points to? Yeah, there's going to be given to those who were given. Now think about this correlation. Those who were given the law carved in stone have hearts made of stone. But he's going to give them a new heart that's no longer going to be stone. And he's going to write on hearts of flesh his law. And out of that softening of the heart, that new heart comes that ability to obey. It is a beautiful imagery that's going on here where they're, they're given tablets of stone with the law and what it results in is they have hearts of stone. But he says, there's a coming new heart that's coming. There was a lot of there's coming in that sentence. (laughs) And now fast forward into the new Testament. And we have uh, within that change that, that new heart that's given to the believer, uh, there's going to be gifts that are given for the blessing of the community of Christ. Uh, There's going to be, a sufficiency to minister to those outside of that community given by the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, there's uh, the way we live our lives instead of bringing shame. Remember that that's the old thing. We, we've profaned his name. Uh, now we're setting an example and they're imitating us and they're imitating the Lord. Why? Because the spirit abides within us. All right. So let's look again at the book of Acts and examine the following passage about the Holy Spirit. And uh, we're going to read Acts 1 some of Acts 4 and some of Acts 6. And uh, let's ask the question at the end of this, all right, according to that, what's the purpose of the Holy Spirit being given? Somebody want to read for us uh, Acts 1.8? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And Acts 4, and now, Lord, look upon their hearts and grant to you, your servants, to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the... Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness in Acts 6. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Sumerians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom of the Spirit with which he was speaking. All right, so what's the purpose of the Holy Spirit being given that we find in those passages in Acts? To empower the witness, right? Yeah, power of witness, power to speak. Uh, interesting that the last one is Stephen, that they cannot stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Like that indwelling spirit made him a witness. Anybody know what the uh, Greek word for witness is? Witness. Uh, Witnessio. Yeah. That's it. Witnessio. That's it. Good, good guess. Martyr. Oh, that's funny. The, the, uh, the indwelling power. I was close, Avery. Witnessio. You made up a Greek word. Witnessio. <laughs> the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, made them the type of people who were wise enough, who were filled with the Holy Spirit and motivated enough uh, to speak with boldness and clarity as witnesses to Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, who alone has salvation in his name, up to the point where it cost them their own life joyfully and gladly that they might proclaim Christ. That's the power of the Holy Spirit, right? That is not... As we think about it, uh, our hope sitting in this room is that under similar circumstances, uh, we would stand with boldness for Jesus Christ. But I would suggest that doesn't lie within the power of any of us. That is a outpouring of the Holy Spirit that makes them witnesses, that makes them martyrs. Right? Salvation history, fill in the blanks here. The work of God is affirmed in the Jerusalem Council. God is incorporating Gentiles in the new covenant without them becoming Jews. Only faith in Jesus is required. 
The forgiveness of sins by the blood of Jesus cleanses us, puts us into a right relationship with God, and allows the Spirit to dwell in our hearts by faith. The Spirit empowers us in many ways for ministry and witness, giving us the ability to do the commands of Jesus and boldness to speak the truth. All right, I don't know that we're going to get done with this lesson, but we'll take the last 20 minutes that we have, get as far as we can. Tracing a biblical theology of the Spirit. In an enigmatic reference in the second verse of the Bible, the Spirit is mentioned as involved in creation. Genesis 1, 1 and 2, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. What does that mean? I don't know. It's enigmatic, right? It's it's mysterious exactly what that looked like, what it meant. Uh, Much later in biblical prophecy, the Spirit is again mentioned as being involved in a new creation. Notice how physical renewal and moral restoration flow into each other in the following passage. Isaiah 32, 14 to 18. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from upon from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Isaiah 44, 1 through 5. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you in the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshron, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on a thirsty land and streams on dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring, my blessing upon your descendants. They shall spring up from uh, they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowering streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. The Holy Spirit fulfills three primary roles in the Old Testament. First, it's an agent of creation and renewal. And second is described in the following text. Exodus 31, 1 through 5. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with the ability and intelligence, with knowledge and craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. Interesting that, that this reference to the uh, filling of the Holy Spirit in an individual led him to be a craftsman, to the glory of God. <laughs> he was making Mennonite furniture to the glory of God. He was painting houses to the glory of God. Numbers 24, 2 through 4. Uh, and Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. He took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the word of God and sees the vision of the Almighty. 
Judges 3. So uh, there the Holy Spirit comes upon him and enables him to speak the very words of God, even though he himself was a bit of a turd. Judges 3, 9 through 10. I, I don't know if that's an official biblical designation, but it is now. Judges 3, 9 through 10. Uh, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, and the spirit of the Lord was upon him. He judged Israel. He went out to war. <coughs> I, I was thinking about the judges earlier today because I was driving in some tent pegs <laughs> to sort of hold the opposite sides of our volleyball net in place. And I thought, a weapon of the Lord. <laughs> and then I thought, how would you go about driving this into somebody's skull? Like, hold still. I got one good swing. And if I miss on the first one, we're all in trouble here. Why I thought of that, I don't, I don't know. I can't remember. Were they really drunk in that story or was it just a stupid? They were hiding under a bunch Yeah, I think they were, yeah, they were exhausted from fleeing. They were hiding like under this. Under under something and then tent peg to the head yeah yeah all right isaiah 59 21 as for me this is my covenant with them says the lord my spirit is upon you that's isaiah and my words i've put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring says the lord from this time forth and forevermore that's a beautiful promise because he's not really talking about isaiah's grandchildren uh but us the we are in that lineage where uh the word of god is in our hearts and minds and mouth uh, this role of the holy spirit is also found in the following important text about the anointing of david as king in israel first samuel 16 6 through 13 uh, surely the Lord, the lord's anointed is before him but the lord said to samuel that in seeing david's brother uh, don't look on his appearance, on his height and his stature. I've rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees because man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then uh, he brings David in front of him, who is ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. <laughs> Just <laughs> like we need to know that about David. I, I like that we need to know that about David because it's included in scripture. He had beautiful eyes what's handsome and the lord said arise anoint him for this is he and samuel took up the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers all right the second role of the holy spirit that is described in the old testament is not a role that the holy spirit had within all of israel not all israelites were given the spiritual gift to serve and lead all right so uh, we think about the universality of the holy spirit poured out on believers now we don't necessarily find that at least extensively throughout the old testament uh, of them receiving the holy spirit's outpouring and then having the power to either prophesy or lead it was specific individuals likewise the third role of the holy spirit in the old testament was not always universally enjoyed in all of israel concerning uh, consider the following text especially noting the excerpt from ezekiel 36 that we'll get to here uh, numbers 14 22 to 24 None of the men who have seen my glory and the signs that I did in Egypt in the wilderness yet have put before put me to the test these ten, ten times and have not obeyed my voice. 
shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit, he has followed me fully, I will bring into the land. Uh, the other people don't get to see it, but there's something different. There's a different spirit in Caleb. Uh, Ezekiel eleven seventeen through 20. Therefore, Say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you've been scattered. I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things, its abominations. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh. Again, it's those who are uh, tasked with being uh, the ones who restore and renew Israel. Uh, Did their fathers have that? No, like it, it was for them. In Ezekiel 36, 24 to 28, I will take you from the nations. I will gather you out of all the countries. I will bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle you with clean, wa- clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Again, did their fathers have that or grandfathers? No, th- this was specific to what God was doing in that time with that people. There are probably many ways to describe the problem Israel had under the old covenant and the reason why the nation as a whole did not fulfill God's commission to spread his glory throughout the whole earth. Remember, that's, that is the starting biblical thread that we're going to trace throughout all old and new covenant. God is putting his glory on display throughout the whole earth. And he's using different people in different times, places, and situation to put his glory on on display that that is the one unifying theme that goes above all all right so it becomes increasingly clear that israel's kings also in general lack the spirit and therefore lead the people into idolatry and eventually into exile why because god wants a people for his own possession and glory and they're pointing to another glory so what is the lord's response to the problem of bad leaders who don't have his spirit Notice the following text and how the Spirit is involved in the restoration of Israel. Numbers 27, 15 and 19, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, Let the Lord, the God of all spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before, come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep who have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, the man in whom is the spirit and lay your hand on him. All right, so God chooses a godly leader with the spirit for Samuel 16, verse one, and then 12 through 13, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul whom I have rejected, a king who uh, walked away from the spirit of God and he sent and brought him in. And again, we find the, the account of David coming in and the Lord says, arise and anoint him, this is him. Isaiah 11, 1 through 5, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of of Jesse and a branch from his roots that shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Uh, The promise was there is one who is coming and on him the Holy Spirit will dwell. And because the Holy Spirit is dwelling in him, uh, there are going to be signs that accompany it that are going to be noticeable. They will mark him out from everyone who's around him, right? That's the Old Testament promise. Now, fast forward into the New Testament. Uh, 
John chapter 1, 29 to 34. The next day, John the baptizer, who's been going out day after day after day, calling God's people. Remember, his message was just for the Jews. Repent, be baptized. It, it wasn't Jesus yet. It's just turn from your sins. Let this baptism be a symbol of the washing away of sin and return to faithfulness to God. He sees Jesus and he cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I spoke. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed in Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remain on him. Now remember, what's the Old Testament promise of this uh, root that's going to grow up out of the stump of Jesse. The Spirit's going to be upon him. Um, But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. John 3, 31 to 35. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what has been seen and heard. Yet no one receives this testimony. Whoever receives this testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, and he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. So the Spirit, however, will not just come upon the Messiah of God's new creation people. The following passage, actually, before we get to that, it's interesting when John the baptizer is arrested and he's sitting in jail for some pro. He's sitting in jail long enough that he begins to doubt if he's going to make it out. All of my ministry that has been that he says, I came baptizing that he might be revealed that. I know that's why I'm here, that that this Messiah would be revealed. And then remotely, he's watching Jesus's ministry, his earthly ministry unfold. And so he sends word through uh, disciple to disciple. Are you the one or should we expect somebody else? I get that you're part of the plan. You you can't not be part of the plan, but that is there another step that we didn't see coming? Is, is there a greater Messiah to be revealed? And what does Jesus send back? He, he quotes uh, back to that, that passage, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Again, that, that imagery of the Holy Spirit descending upon me to proclaim freedom to the captives, uh, not physical captives, because John, you're not getting out of prison but for those whose spirits have been held in darkness. And and all of the miracles, blind eyes are open. Go tell them what you see. Go testify to this. To say all of that which was promised, that the Holy Spirit would dwell upon somebody in such a remarkable way that we would see it, go tell John this is happening. It's beautiful. There's no further explanation, but he connects to this thread of biblical theology that John knew and says, it's happening. Hold on and wait for it. Man, what great encouragement is that for us when we're in the midst of our own dark, imprisoned times and he doesn't come and turn the key and get us out of prison like half of the praise and worship songs today testify. Uh, It's all about... It's all about whatever breakthrough or God breaking off the chains or walking out of that grave. Uh, 
he accomplishes that on a spiritual level where we have an ability to walk in newness of life now, but there's a greater that's yet coming. All right. I just wanted to touch on that before we jump into the rest of these passages. Whose child is that sitting in the back? Just wanted to remind you. I actually, I think we're going to leave it here because it. I think that it's a, a good place to tie it up with that reminder of um, that God's primary purpose from creation all the way through redemption and new creation is to put his glory on display in the earth. And sometimes his glory is put on display when he miraculously rescues and redeems his people, delivers his people. Uh, And sometimes his glory is put on display when his people for generation after generation after generation in the midst of hardship choose to put their trust in God. That it's not just about my comfort and enjoyment of this moment. I am walking in newness of life, but there's a better newness of life that is coming. And even for those who have fallen asleep in Christ, there's a better yet to come. Like the the trumpet has not yet sounded. There is a great restoration of all things. And by the way, we get to see that at the same time that they do. And I, I think that is just comfort for our souls who maybe like John can feel stuck in a period of time and go, God, is this really your plan? Is this it? Is there, a, there, there must be a part two that's coming. And the reality is, yes, there's a part two that's coming. Whether we see it on this side of eternity or on that side of eternity, uh, we are the elect who get to be part of it. And that's good news for us. Lord, I, I pray that you would help us not just know that, but believe it and cling to it in our spirits. Lord, we can know some of these things in our heads, but when this world shakes us, when this world feels like it it is set against us, when it feels like the darkness is winning, oh God, how quickly we forget. I pray you would anchor our hope to the truth that our God reigns, and that in everything, every situation, every joy and every sorrow, he is working to put his glory on display for our good and for the sake of your great name. And so I I pray, make us those who who believe that and trust you. Uh, Not help us, O God, because our strength is so weak. Our faculties of mind are so shallow that we pray, make us, God, those who see it. Make us those who believe it. Cause us by your spirit to be those who live in light of that truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We will see you Thursday night, five o'clock, day over lunch.